We still need to focus on making it easy for people. We need to be where people are using it. Instead of thinking that we need to create a platform where people come to, we need to be where people are. Clayton Christensen, a hero of mine, he hit the nail on its head. He came up with this concept called jobs to be done, that we need to focus on what job do we want our solution to do for people. Guided by over 25 years in the data and research industry and assisting innovators with investment banking and advisory services, Seema Vasa brings you Data Gurus, a leading market research podcast that offers actionable insights for business acceleration and value creation. Join her as she speaks with key innovators in the space to bring you up to speed with the current state and the future of data analytics and data ecosystems. This is Data Gurus. Tired of market research solutions that put your project in a box? At Paradigm Sample, we approach market research support with customized and consultative solutions. Whether you need help with questionnaire design, survey programming, or online data collection, we're ready to assist. Let us know your needs, and we can customize a solution just for you. Learn more at ParadigmSample.com. Welcome to another episode of Data Gurus. This is Seema Vasa. I'm excited to welcome Dr. Thomas Zawagi Ramsey, who is the CEO and founder of Neurons. Welcome, Thomas. Thank you for having me, Seema. Thank you. And for the listeners, just tell us where you're based, because I know we were just talking about the crazy weather in Europe and how it has not impacted you, but curious to share where you're based and located. Sure. We're based out of Copenhagen, so just outside Copenhagen, and which means that we're not hit as hard on the weather in terms of warm weather, but we have the opposite effect. We actually see a colder summer this time of year, which is strange. Yeah, that is strange. Thank you for joining me. You founded this amazing company, and I want to get to that. But before we do that, can you just share a little bit of your background as to how you got to this point? Sure. It is a long story, so I'll keep it short. I have a mixed background in terms of first doing business and economics in Norway, before I studied philosophy, then went over to psychology, and I became a neuropsychologist and worked as a clinical neuropsychologist for many years. What that means is that I've looked into psychometrics, how can we make very good measurements, how can we make sure that we have valid measurements, that they are predictive, and you're basically predicting people's future. So that's very critical. And you also, in that process, saw patient. You were doing clinical work as well. Yeah, so that would be people with brain injuries, stroke, dementias, and things like that. So to do what's called differential diagnosis, so to basically understand, is this patient, is that a type of Parkinson's, is it Alzheimer's, is it something else? So that's where you really need to rely on your tools. Then I moved over to neuroimaging and neurobiology. I did a lot of work and a PhD in neurobiology. So what that means is I've I focus very much on doing neuroimaging, which is fMRI and these fancy brain scanning experiments. I did a lot of studies on that and other types of techniques as well, such as EEG, which is the electrodes that you put on the scalp, for example, and a lot of eye tracking and behavioral measures. So as part of that, I was invited to establish a research group in conjunction with the University Hospital of Copenhagen and the Copenhagen Business School to study everyday decision-making. So how does the brain do everyday decision-making and what happens in the brain when we're doing consumer behavior, when we have management and leadership decisions and, and things like that. So that turned out to become what's called the Center for Decision Neuroscience, which I headed from 2008 to 15. And that's where I quit my academic affiliation because my company was too much fun to do my company. So you did that, you started the company while you were still chair of that institution. Yes. So in 2012, I was contacted by Lowe's of all companies. So Lowe's, the home improvement company, 
they realized that they wanted to use neuroscience, but they didn't trust the existing vendors out there because a lot of kind of black boxes and secrecy and IP protection. So what we wanted to do is to build the toolbox from scratch. And that was what became the company Neurons. Uh, we've held hands with Lowe since that time. So that's 10 years ago. That's fantastic. I, I'm always fascinated by this idea, especially with technology moving at such a rapid pace. People are buying solutions without understanding the background of the methodology, the approach. Are you finding that clients want to dig into, quote unquote, the black box now? Or is it something that's accepted and saying, okay, you do neuroscience. I trust you. You have these clients. What do you see in terms of buying behavior that way? I think that we've gone through a couple of hype cycles. So we've seen that in applied neuroscience, in neuromarketing and things like that, is that we've seen there's been a lot of companies that have overpromised and underdelivered. So we've seen that has, first of all, has led to a lot of disappointed clients, first of all. Some of them so disappointed they never came back to this solution. And then there have been through the ARF, the Advertising Research Foundation and other comparable foundations, they have focused very much on establishing certain standards and benchmarks and things like that to create the right awareness and collaborate with academia as well to basically boost the trust and the value of these technologies. I think that what we're seeing now is that there has been an established benchmark for how these companies should do. And it's more about whether a company wants to invest in it, which technology and which solutions they want to go for. I want to give you a chance to talk about your company specifically and your methodology. But before we do that, I guess I'm curious, how do you look at neuroscience in terms of the overall tool in the toolbox? What applications do you see it's most robust for? Yeah, it's a great question because I think that when we think about neuroscience, neuroscience is a really broad topic. So it goes from studying single cells and how they communicate and neurotransmitters and all the way over to groups of cells and networks and whole brains, right? So I think when we're talking about neuroscience in this context, it's typically what we can call cognitive neuroscience. So how the brain makes up its mind, basically. So what happens in the brain that creates consciousness, memories, emotional responses, and decisions and behavior. I think that's try to narrow it down to that. But even so, there are two broad branches that we can think of. So one is what we can call basic research or academic research. So that's where you typically use methodologies such as fMRI or these kind of deep brain scanning technologies that are typically very noisy. You put people into kind of a huge machine and it's very kind of artificial environment, but you learn so much about how the brain works. So that's your main focus. But if you really want to use more applied approaches to understand, do people respond better to this ad or this packaging or this app, or then you need a different toolbox. You need to turn more to eye tracking, EEG, which is still kind of a brain monitoring device, but it's much more lightweight. And you can create exactly the same kind of fancy brain images if you want. But it does measure emotional conflict responses, which is your main interest. So there's kind of two broad branches, academic research and applied research. And I think that... When we're talking about neuromarketing, that's mostly applied research. We use the insights and tools from certain types of neuroscience to answer specific questions for companies. And then you have something called consumer neuroscience, which is more kind of the basic research. How does the brain make decisions, basically? Interesting. Thank you. Okay, let's talk about neurons. Give us an overview of where you focus, the solutions you provide, and let's start there. Sure. I think that if you go even back to when Lowe's reached out, I think that the premise that we went for is that, sure, I was very aware of other companies doing this kind of black box thing, and we wanted to do different things differently. So we focused on 
building methods, metrics through proper scientific documentation. So everything we've done since day one is a full transparency model. So if we have a metric, we say that we're measuring emotional responses, for example, that has scientific publications that we made to demonstrate that it actually works. So instead of having a kind of a secret sauce that we keep to ourselves, we wanted to show it and we wanted to be the best in that. So Neurons started off by doing a lot of testing for advertising, retail, packaging, a lot of innovation work as well to understand how consumers were freaking out or adopting new technologies. And through that, we learned that there were certain types of signature responses that people had for whether they wanted to remember something, whether they wanted to buy something, whether they want to spend time with something, for example. And until 2018-ish, we did a lot of work on that. We have had offices around the world, so from Japan to India to Turkey to places in Europe, including Copenhagen, and also in the US as well, and Latin America. So we collected a ton of data on consumer responses to anything from ads to websites to packaging and so forth. Now, we realized that we were sitting on a gold mine. And as a neuroscientist, we've done machine learning for 20 years, 30 years. So it's not a new thing, but of course, that there was a renewed interest and popularization and people got aware of it. And there was, of course, the new with the tensor possibilities and everything that came with computational power. And all of a sudden, we realized that we could do something with the data sets. So we had a kind of gear shift in 2020 where we already have demonstrated that we could actually use some of the eye tracking data we had on consumer responses to predict accurately where people would look. So that means that instead of running an eye tracking study that would cost you $30,000, for example, and it would take you three, four weeks, you could upload the same materials and you would have a response within a few seconds to minutes, depending on whether it was images or videos and for a fraction of a cost, of course. So we realized that we're doing that, and that became like a shift for neurons. We turned away from a consultancy house to become a SaaS business, basically. So just give us an idea of the amount of data that you collected over the years. You share the geographies, but can you provide some context as to how much data you actually collected and how you collected it? Sure. So a typical study would be using eye tracking devices. That's basically infrared cameras that are measuring exactly where people are looking, typically has something like 50 hertz. So it's like a new data point every 20 milliseconds. And then you have EG brain monitoring that can be used and translated into cognitive and emotional responses. We upscale that to be new data point every half a second to a second, but you actually get down to 256 data points per second. So it's a lot of data to be honest. It's a lot of data. Yeah. We typically test something like 30 to 40 people per item. And we collect something like 30 minutes of recordings of each person. Yeah. So you can imagine that multiplies pretty heftily. So it becomes a lot of data. And are you putting them in a real store environment? Are they coming into a location? Both, actually. So on the one side, when we really want to have a tight control over everything that people are exposed to so we can standardize the analysis and things, we have a lab set up that people come into a central location and we're testing them in a more standardized environment. But we have also figured out ways to denoise the EG signal so you can send people into a store environment, you can test them in a virtual reality environment, for example. So we've done all of that. And the most standardized database that we're using for training our models consists of something like 25 to 30,000 people. And you can imagine collecting them 30 minutes to an hour each. And on top of that, we also have developed a new, what we call online implicit measures that we can measure how people respond in implicit as well. And we have something like 150,000 people in that database. Wow. 
And I would imagine you continue to collect data to keep it fresh. Yeah, there are several reasons for doing that. So one is that we want to make sure that we have a broad representation in the models, so to speak. You know, we're trying to predict consumer behaviors. And first of all, we're trying to predict the general gen pop, so general population, how people respond. But over time, we want to kind of see if we can fragment that into specific subsegments. People tend to respond differently over time. So that means that the way that we respond to TikTok today is different from the first time you saw TikTok, for example. So people's response patterns are changing over time. And also marketing changes the way that they're doing campaigns and things like that, both over season, over time as well. So that means that we also need to update our models and update our benchmarks. So that's why we got really committed to continuously record more data. I'm always curious, when consumers make a decision, how much bias are they bringing into the decision-making? Are they consistent in those decisions, given the bias they might bring? I don't know if that's even a fair question, but... Well, that's, a very, that's a very relevant question. That's exactly that's spot on for kind of the big challenge. So you can turn it on this head and say, we want to predict everything. Ultimately, that's what we want to do. But it's not feasible. Certain types of behaviors have a high variance and other types of behavior are very reliable, both within a person, but also between people. So the good analogy here is that if you observe people watching a horror movie, for example, you go to the cinema, let's say that, and you go to the front and you observe people instead of watching the movie. And because it's a horror movie, you can see that people will respond very kind of coherently to the jump scare, for example. So that's a very coherent behavior. And that's what we're looking for. Those are the good candidates that we can try to predict. When people are watching a boring movie, for example, people will be all over the place and they will not have a very coherent response. So that will be a poor candidate for such a behavior. So what we're working on is to try to identify those different types of responses and behaviors that are highly reliable and also valid in terms of, and also relevant, of course. We're not trying to predict horror movie responses, so we try to predict other things. So we actually built a model together with Stanford Business School that we call it the four power model. So these are four steps that happen even within the first second of watching an ad, for example, that is highly predictive of how you will respond to that afterwards. So the first is attention. So will it grab and sustain attention? The second is emotional responses. Is it engaging or is it disengaging? The third is what we call cognitive power or cognition. So that's, do you actually understand what's going on? Do you connect the story and the narrative to the brand? And the final is memory. So do you remember the ad and do you remember the brand? So those are the four things that we have found that we can predict very accurately. And that also means that we can predict the market responses based on the neuroscience data. And that also means that those are very good candidates for creating AI models that can do the same prediction. So what is the feedback loop you've gotten from clients in terms of leveraging your product and actually a positive response, let's say, in your platform and then taking something to market? So I think that, to be very honest, the first thing was that even back in 2012, when I started this company, the guy that was kicking off the Lowe's Innovation Lab, Kyle Nell, he was visiting me in Copenhagen. I was just fiddling around with his MATLAB code to see if I can emulate visual attention. He looked over my shoulder and was like, what is that? And I explained what it was and I, I need that. So even at that time, I was not a programmer. So I set up almost like a Dropbox account so that he could drop things in and he got an output out and that was it. That was the kickoff. And I think that even 10 years ago, we saw that there was a big potential for this. What has happened in the meantime is that people have now become acquainted with machine learning and AI. And all of a sudden now, we can't avoid hearing about it every day, right? So I think that was not the case 10 years ago. Everyone was talking about big data, but nobody knew what to do with big data. And here we had the solution, but people didn't connect the dots, to be honest. 
So what we've seen is that still reflects a little bit how people take the type of offerings that we have. On the one side, you have people who are pretty tech savvy and they're statistically savvy. They're used to doing research. They're used to that. They understand it. They get it right away. It's more a question about how, how we validated things and we have tech people for that. And then on the other side, you have people who basically think we're doing hogwash, it's BS. This is not the real deal. This is just that magic wand or whatever it is, and they don't really trust it. And I think that there's a third group, which is designers, that I know feel a little threatened about it. But what we're seeing is that when we are providing this as a tool directly into the platform they're using, so if they're using Figma or Adobe or things like that, it's very quick for them to adopt and use it because it's just a tool for them that while they're designing, just double check that it actually works, right? So that's what we're seeing is that we need to think about this. How should it be helpful for them instead of thinking this is a tool come to us? So I think we're where people are basically. I love that use case with the creative designers in terms of as they develop even simple content or designs, they can quickly get an assessment if they're moving in the right direction or if they actually potentially have to start from scratch. I had not thought about that use case. And it's like designing along with the data in terms of what they're building. That's what we see today, right? Just like the AI will not replace other people, but it's actually people who use the AI that will replace other people. I think that's the new competitive edge is that if you figure out a good way to use these AI solutions, that's the big new kind of competitive edge, if you like. So to give a good example, you can think that if you take half of all ads, you just observe any ads you print out or outdoor banners, for example. If you look at where is the brand positioned, about half of all times is positioned in the bottom right corner. From a creative perspective, it makes a lot of sense because you want people to look at the ad and they will end up at the brand and connect the dots, basically, right? The problem is that people don't really want to watch your ad. So less than 4% will actually see your brand down in the bottom right corner. So we even call it the corner of death. That's like if you look at eye tracking data, that's where people don't look. The AI model has actually picked up on that. And what we see is that when people are using these tools in Figma, Adobe, and things like that, as the user, as part of the design process, they actually avoid those mistakes. So that's just a very kind of visual mistake that people very often do about half of the time, right? We can fix that for people very easily by just using the AI. Very cool. Any other use cases you'd like to share with us in terms of how people use the platform? Yeah, I think the one thing that I would like to mention that is pretty critical is that there's a distinction between generative AI and predictive AI. And there's a third type of solution you can go into, but everybody today are talking about generative AI. If that's mid-journey, if it's ChatGPT or other language models or whatever it is, right? You're using AI to create something new. What we are focusing on is not that. We're focusing much more on what's called predictive AI. So we try to predict other people's behaviors. So market response, so not individuals, but market responses. But what we see is that when people are using generative AI, if you don't fix your problems, like putting a brand on the bottom right corner, the generative AI will just exacerbate those problems you already have. So it just inflate the whole problem for you. So what we see is that the generative AI, when people use that, they should always double check it with predictive AI. And some of the moves that we see today is that we're trying to connect with the generative AI solution so that it becomes like a feedback loop for them. So that's the next step that we can expect to see at least. Let's just break that down a little bit. In the application of, let's say, go back to the designers, right? They might test their design in generative AI and get feedback, but you're saying they're repeating that the data that's feeding that model, it's based on the past and not necessarily using it for predictive purposes in terms of what's working and what's not working. Yeah. So I wouldn't say it's even more basic that when designers are using generative AI, 
they basically set the theme and they worked very much on finding the right way to prompt the engine to come up with the best idea. But the idea is basically calibrated what it has been fed with. So if you make a generative AI, it all depends on what is the database you've built it on, right? And what predictive AI can provide is a kind of a feedback to that engine to say, hey, that's good, or you don't get the right responses you want. So it throws that back in the face of the generative AI that has to redo its work. And what we're hoping is that becomes like a quick feedback loop for this engine. So it can generate that much faster than if you have to do this kind of almost like SEMA manually, if you like. So that, that's the expectation. Yeah, that would be very powerful in terms of a tool for many people who are building marketing campaigns, product designers through the creative process. Yeah, we even said we should be raising the awareness as well that companies need to be careful how much commercial noise, if you like, they're contributing to as well. So generative AI is just putting extra fuel on how much content people are putting out there as A-B testing and things like that. The problem is that we're still testing on people, right? So it means that you're trying campaigns that are actually not working and might even be disturbing and disrupting to people, which has a negative effect for people. So people don't really want to watch your ad. If you're now providing an ad that, you know, it's even more disturbing and disrupting than you would like to, then it's going to have a negative halo effect for your brand. So we need to create that awareness. So what we're hoping is that these predictive AI solutions can calibrate before you even start testing stuff. Very interesting. I think what you're hitting on is just also education and knowledge of what we're talking about, especially here in the U.S. The discussion around AI is exploding and people are still trying to figure out what's what and not truly understanding these distinctions in terms of the different types of AI. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And I think that we still need to focus on making it easy for people. We need to be where people are using it. Instead of thinking that we need to create a platform where people come to, we need to be where people are. I think that Clayton Christensen was a hero of mine. I think that he hit the nail on its head that he came up with this concept called jobs to be done, that we need to focus on what job do we want our solution to do for people. And instead of thinking, we tend to be very self-centered when we come up with this kind of new magic wand. So we need to be very focused on what job does it need to help people with doing. Yep. It's interesting. You're not the first person to say it. A few people have said that to me recently and it's resonating. It's more about being solutions oriented, being empathetic and trying to understand how can we help others get their work done. Exactly. There's nothing as bad as a bad checkout experience on an e-commerce website, for example, right? Very true. Very true. Thomas, thank you so much for joining me today. I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation and I look forward to keeping in touch with you in the future. Thank you very much, Seema. I enjoyed it as well. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Data Gurus podcast brought to you by Infinity Squared. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a five-star review and be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Tired of market research solutions that put your project in a box? At Paradigm Sample, we approach market research support with customized and consultative solutions. Whether you need help with questionnaire design, survey programming, or online data collection, we're ready to assist. Let us know your needs, and we can customize a solution just for you. Learn more at ParadigmSample.com.